Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there, people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Our guest today is Sophie Walker, a former journalist turned activist and campaigner and the founding leader of the UK Women's Equality Party. Sophie became leader of the party in 2015, shortly after she ran for Mayor of London, before stepping down in 2019. She is author of the book Five Rules for Rebellion, Let's Change the World Ourselves, in which she interviews other female activists drawing lessons from their collective experience. For obvious reasons, we are delighted Sophie was up for a chat today, and we really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Sophie. We're really happy that you could make some time to have a chat. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I sort of got a bit of a slightly rogue question, I think, to start with, because I'd love to hear a bit more about how you got into becoming a campaigner, an activist and eventually a politician. But there was something in your book that stood out sort of, I think it's in the earlier chapter, just because it's so similar to what we talk about in Be More Pirate. And every time I do a talk on Be More Pirate, I always frame the reason why people decide to become a pirate or a, a sort of rebel or activist or change something significant about their life. It was the line that Sam wrote, no one is coming to save you. That's always the thing that gets repeated back. And in fact, I had an email from a guy just last week who was in a workshop who said that he then repeated that to a group that he was working with, that if we are going to have a hope in hell at changing any issues around equality, we're going to have to rewrite our own rules and recognise that no one's coming to save us. And you've written almost exactly the same thing, which is you might have been holding off the hope that someone somewhere is coming to the rescue, get that fantasy out of the way. The fact that nobody's coming to the rescue means one thing, it's up to you to save yourself. And so I was wondering if there was a a standout moment for you where that realisation came to the fore, where you were like, oh, wow, it's up to me. Yeah, totally, very much. Um, It was the moment when I realised that no one was going to come and help me and my daughter. We had been in a battle to get a diagnosis of autism for her for, I mean, the whole process took five years. And then there was another two and a half years after that to try to get the educational support that she needed. 
I mean, it was trench warfare. Every day was a slog and a battle, and we felt very lonely. And it was absolutely a crucible in which my <laughs> activism was set alight because I realised an awful lot of things during those years. One was the contempt with which society, people who are different and people who care for people who are different. And we've seen that, I think, writ large during this pandemic. You know, let's all go and clap for our carers. They don't need our clapping. They need pay rises and they need support and recognition in their own lives. I think that it became very clear to me the extent to which this contempt was based on the fact that it's predominantly women doing that care work, that we live in a world where men work and women care. And as long as care is not recognised as the hard work that it is, it's never going to be equally and adequately valued. I realised that my daughter was different, in inverted commas, but also that our idea of normal, in inverted commas, actually relates to the experience of a tiny, tiny minority of people who are predominantly white and male and straight and wealthy. And my daughter and I bounced around for so long between all of the services that were supposed to see us and support us and care for us and either in a state of crisis themselves because of inadequate funding or were operating to woefully inadequate ideas of the care that they were supposed to be providing. So, for example, my daughter's special educational needs teacher at one point when, you know, the 5,000th time I was being called to the school because she was being bullied, said, well, you know, she brings it on herself. And you can (laughs) hear that the Rage is not far behind my words and it's what continues to drive me and I found myself alone and very distressed looking after a child who felt alone and very distressed and I remember that moment every single day, that moment of absolute clarity of like, wow, okay, really nobody's coming, I'm going to have to do something about this myself. And the thing I want to be also really clear about is that the myself only gets you so far. That moment was what lit me up and propelled me forward. But what makes a difference is when you find your people and you find your communities and you link arms. Yeah, I'd like to pick on that, please, Sophie. The thing that I found in frustrations of trying to create change, particularly, you know, I am the straight, middle class, middle aged white dude of which you speak and trying to understand But I've always tried to operate in service to communities that I've been fortunate enough to work with and try to leverage the doors or powers that I have appropriate to the privilege that I have. And from some own personal experience of being a carer and and other parts of life, you know, I'm lucky to see or at least to feel like I've seen enough of both worlds not to be as patronising as it would be possible to be. But one of the things that really interests me for any of us like seeking the chance to make change is the points of intervention at which to go for. Yeah. You know, the individual who's had a frustration and then wants to go and make change finds themselves exhausted at the doors of the local council office, never to be seen again, until you would discover the one person within the council who's a change maker. Or Alex and I were discussing climate yesterday and both feeling exasperated at the individual's ability to make change and thinking it has to be a policy level decision. So as someone who knows the inner workings of politics and business and has then been a change maker too, I totally get the idea that you need your tribe, and you need to have that kind of level of community around you. But choosing the strategic point of intervention where change is most likely to kind of break through and create ripples that last, how did you go about doing that? Because that's so hard for the frustrated many when they look at or or feel daunted by the big picture. But at the same time, just standing alone with a placard doesn't necessarily always work. Actually, take that back, work for Greta Thunberg. But on the whole, it doesn't always seem to work. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that there is no particular way and no particular time and that everything is possible and everything is doable. What I have done really over the last 10, 50, oh God, how long is it now? 14 years? Yeah, 14 years. Is to try pretty much everything and to just be the one thing that is the link in my actions is my sense of purpose. Outside of that, I've tried pretty much everything. The activists that I talk to and with and from and listen to and learn from, because this is very much a learning process for me too, is you can't just do one thing. There is no one perfect way. Change often comes from the outside, like significant change comes from the outside. But you also do need people who are working on the inside. I've campaigned on the streets. I have campaigned online. The very first things I did was I went around pinning up sheets of A4 in community centres and in doctors' waiting rooms saying, you know, I've got an autistic daughter. I'm setting up a group for mums of autistic daughters. Here's, here's how you can get in touch. You know, really, really, really basic stuff. And then the next thing I did was I ran marathons for three or four years to raise money for helplines for people needing support for relatives who were autistic. I bounced into politics out of a massive sense of frustration at the, at the speed of change. So, you know, I did politics for a while. I've, since then, I've worked in the charity sector. I've worked for a law firm, looking at how the law can come at it. Um, I work for, I set up Activate, which is a fund to support female community activists and to support women to run for political office. I mean, I just have at it every day in as many different ways as I can think might make a difference, frankly. I think that's such an important point and will be welcomed by our community that there is no magic bullet or magic formula because a lot of our pirate network are trying to make change alongside services and organizations and the obsession with having a strategy or a plan that looks like it works or that you know they they want always seem to want to know like what will be the silver bullet on this and it can often be a recourse to using a particular platform or technology people are always asking me like how do we connect people effectively and I'm like well ultimately every context and dynamic is different so you really just have to figure out as you go along and speak to the people you're working with. Well and also depending on where they're at in their activist journey like what their resources are. One of the things I really learned when we were building the Women's Equality Party was the number of people who would come and say what can I do what can I do what can I do and I would be frozen I'd be sort of thinking oh my god I've got like Excel spreadsheets full of names of people that I need to find something for them to do and the point at which we managed to turn it around is when we understood better to say the second part of that conversation was what can you do how much time have you got what are you good at what are you interested in like also like the volunteers what you're good at and what you're interested in are often two quite different things <laughs> and you know, being able to yeah <laughs> be honest about that and also yeah, just start a two-way conversation with people that starts from where they are. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I have this conversation all the time, like, what do you want to do? I think that's almost more important. Like, if you're going to do activism, try wherever possible to be excited about the task in front of you. And then also, where do you think your, your strengths are? Because, again, we want to put the best people in the best places. And I think there's, yeah, that, that can often get mismatched. But I think our, our pirate philosophy helps in that respect because we always have a recourse back to step up to the plate, figure out where you think you can add something or do something. You're allowed to spend some time just watching. Like the point at which you decide you've had enough and you want to do something about it, that in itself is change. And you can sit in that period and that process of change for as long as you need to gather the resources and the research or the time or the direction that you need. 
for me, the change is in the moment that your brain clicks into that other place. And I think I have often been guilty of immediately launching myself into something without stopping to think about whether I've really got the time to do this, whether I am the best person to be doing it. I really think there's a lot of value in supporting people who have moved into that different headspace to just sit with it and work out what the next bit looks like rather than a sort of feeling like you have to hurl yourself at the first barricade. When I ran Social Enterprise for Young People, I used to have in my mind a thing I called the purpose curve. And it takes on board several of the things you just said. Firstly, that you know purpose can really be the driver through all of these things. And we'd have so many, you know, thousands of young people who come in and, and, and once they were volunteering, then they want to throw themselves at something. So we're trying to have this kind of two axes in mind of something that you're good at and something that you're going to be passionate about, because it's not just that, like you said, not just the thing you're interested in. And when you find that place, even kids who've been long term excluded, neat, you know, new to the country, feeling really disconnected, suddenly you hit that kind of magic crosshair. And all of a sudden, it's then harder to get that young person out of a sense of purpose than it was to even get them in there. I read a really interesting piece of research recently that kind of within workforce, but I'm sure it kind of relates to life, that the definition of purpose that seems to have such long-term life consequences, and it really does track forward right to you know, long-term lasting health, better posture, all the kind of you know, better grip, all the weird ways that they measure lasting health outcomes, is a purpose beyond self and a purpose that you're unlikely to see realized in your lifetime. And I found that really interesting distinction because at the same time, taking on a fight that you might never win could just seem overwhelming and daunting. And I wonder where you are at with that, because any kind of fight around what was the stat last year that was out around equality of pay, it's unlikely to be achieved within 27 years or, or, or something extraordinary. 180. 180. God, look at me trying to be in denial. How do you reconcile that, both the purpose that motivates you and a challenge that's unlikely to be achieved? And I know your fight is much more than just equal pay, but fights that probably won't be achieved in our lifetime. I'm so glad you've asked this question because it is what really nearly finished me off (laughs) a few years ago. And it's why I wrote Five Rules for Rebellion, because I had got to the point where I had really succumbed to despair and I felt that I was no good. And a brief, you know, a brief bit of context. We launched the Women's Equality Party in 2015, we might have launched 2016. But we launched it in this moment of glorious optimism, the point at which people, particularly women, were talking about feminism again. They were reclaiming feminism. They were refusing to be embarrassed by people that insisted that feminism was not a reasonable word to use. The party grew phenomenally fast. I ran for London Mayor in 2016, and it was an absolute blast. We were having great conversations on doorsteps. The hustings were just like full of zingers. You know, we really felt like we were moving the conversation and really surfing a, a tide of optimism. And then over the next couple of years, everything really changed dramatically in politics. You know, we had the EU referendum, which got really nasty really quickly. Joe Cox was murdered. Donald Trump was elected. There was the sort of rise of the populist strongman around Europe. There was very much a sense of not just misogyny and racism and sexism, and hate generally were acceptable, but that you could actually vote for them, right? And I was being put forward into increasingly sort of gladiatorial spaces to talk about women's equality. I would go and do a sort of primetime program with millions and millions of people watching me up against a misogynist in a nice suit who would sort of say, well, you know, it suggests that (laughs) exactly equal pay was a bit unreasonable, really. And abuse on social media was such. And anyway, it really got to such a point, a point, 
I had to absorb an awful lot of like, you're terrible at this, you're a terrible feminist, you're a useless politician. I'd taken it all very, very personally and, and carried it all around with me and got to the point where I thought, well, what can I do actually? Yeah, like when there's data statistics saying it's going to take another 100 years before we even get equal pay or what is the actual point? So I stopped and I thought somebody better than me should be doing this and I should step out. And, you know, I was very conscious of my white middle class feminism as well and felt that, that I should be like just stop talking and give space to people who had been minoritized and excluded. And so I went and lay on my sofa for about three months with the curtains drawn thinking, what was all that about? And I really don't know what the point of it was. And then, but my brain kept saying, how do you do this? Like, how do you do this and not go mad? How do you do this and sustain a nourishing philosophy for life? And I think that was the bit where I could sort of stand up and open the curtains again. The point where I realised that activism is a philosophy for life and it is cyclical and you there'll be times when you do need to rest and hand over to the other people who are absolutely killing it. And then there'll be times when you're absolutely at the top of your game. And I think in writing the book, what I was trying to do was to chart moments that we all experience, whether it's having to defeat despair or channel your anger or understand that hope is not soft and pretty, but actually one of the most defiant things that you can possess. And so I think I, I got to a space where I understood that purpose is for life. Campaigning is mostly losing, but together you can inch forward and you can support other people to do the work. And I think I've got to a place now where I feel like my purpose is to support other people to do the work and to do stuff with all the things I have learned over the last more than 10 years in a way that can hopefully nourish and sustain others. So much of that resonated. <laughs> very, very much so. I have like almost go-to videos, pieces of writing and things that people have said that I know make me not want to give up or recognize all those things that you said about it being cyclical and you just take the ups and the downs and I've never been in anything near a gladiatorial kind of space but sometimes even talking about radical issues or, or talking very firmly about the need for rule breaking and rebellion you know you can sense when it's <laughs> not well received and one of our pirates Michelle said something recently about just always just being about continually showing up if you can keep just appearing and being there that in a, in a sense is leadership it's also about recognizing when you really shouldn't be there you know when maybe you're a bit knackered and grumpy and you should just maybe not be there for a while that's also okay yeah I agree I wanted to pick up on the chapter that you do have on anger it was so refreshing to read when I was reading it, I thought I have been called angry I've definitely been told that I rant and it really stung at the time a lot. It made me feel like I had a defect of some kind or that I hadn't somehow processed something I should have been able to process or manage or suppress or alchemize in some way as an emotion and that the surfacing of it was not going to be acceptable. But you are really clear in the reframing of it that it should be. And I, and I completely agree with this. And I think I've even said it before that anger is a natural response or, or, or should be a, seen as a normal response if there is an injustice in front of you and it's not a bad thing to, to react in an, an angry way. However, in the same way you're, you say about sometimes you just need to not turn up if you're grumpy or too angry and there are certain spaces where your anger might not be the most useful emotion and then at times it is also clearly very much needed as the kind of energy and driver of activism. Is there anything you've learned about how to channel that rage in a way that is constructive that or maybe you've seen from the other activists you've you've interviewed and worked with I don't think I've ever not showed up because I was too angry I think sometimes I have decided to step out when I was 
depressed or feeling despairing and felt that my mood or my tone would risk dousing other people's activist fire. What I have managed to do with my anger, I think, is understand places where I can be angry in different ways. And also to play around and experiment with being angry in places where one might think one maybe couldn't be or shouldn't be. I do think that it is particularly difficult for women to express anger because we are so often told that it is a sign of our female unreasonableness or hysteria or we get called feisty, which is a word reserved for women and animals as a sort of expression of almost brave or, you know, angry in a funny, non-threatening way. I think what I've learned about anger is to channel it and to find the right people to be angry in the right way with. And I'm sorry, I know that sounds a bit vague. I also think it really depends how experienced you are and how long you've been in this game. I I turned 50 this year and I really don't care very much about being angry in places where people might tell me not to be angry. I care a lot less what people think of me. I know that, you know, if you're just starting off or if you're getting a sense of who your allies are, or if you feel like you're still learning, and I do very much still feel like I'm, you know, feel like I'm still learning. But, you know, I think like what we said earlier, you start from where you are. If you're comfortable expressing your anger, then, you know, God, do it, do it. But also think about where you are. It's interesting. I often get asked to sort of come and do sort of corporate things, come and talk on a panel or come and give a speech for International Women's Day in between the cupcakes. and. I think the thing that makes me most angry is conversations where you're being asked to feed into a sort of dishonest conversation, like, gosh, there's these big problems, whatever are we going to do about them? For instance, there were strokes their chins, and I used to not do those because I, I thought they were dishonest, but now I'm more likely to do them and go along and say, you know exactly what the problem is. <laughs> you know exactly what the problem is, so let's get angry about it. I think semantics are really important in this debate because there are so many nuances to it. And I think it's really important to bring them out as well. And I know lots of people on all sides of the equation, but particularly blokes who shy away from a conversation because they feel like they're going to trip up. But actually, you know, it's slightly lazy. And what you just said there about anger is the same. I mean, like terms like defensive, certainly as grew a business, like the different things you realize that get said i've always had female business partners and just the way that we approach it and now i've got two daughters and you know words like bossy and stroppy you know they're just reserved for lesser forms of bravery and it need to be on it to call it out but i wonder where you like deal with this because there's a necessity to shorthands i saw you were phrased as one of the new suffragettes now that's a really interesting shorthand i wonder how you feel about it and for me in terms of my daughters when i worked on be more pirate i took them to see the unveiling of millicent forceps to explain to them why rule breaking is important. And there are moments when you're really challenging conventions where you're going to be doing the wrong thing, but knowing it's the right thing is an inward and moral decision. And they got that because, well, the older one had because they'd studied the suffragettes. But in politics, and you must have experienced this firsthand, shorthands become weaponized and are not useful in incredibly nuanced debate like like you know 2016 when you emerged it was such a ray of hope and i remember you know all of us at liberty we were so inspired and we talked about you loads it was just the best thing and then like you say the rest of that year crumbled to shit on this really oversimplified set of dualities that were never dualities it was never in or out or trump or not the complexity was the problem so I wonder where you sit with that, how you feel about both that shorthands that you've used our need for them and the increasing pace of communication. And like you said, sometimes reflection is the necessary thing, but do we need to escape them or, or get better with them? The thing that helps me steer through everything that you've said is good faith. It's about engaging with people who are themselves engaging in good faith. 
I can deal with an awful lot being chucked at me if I feel like it is a conversation with a person who is engaging in good faith. I've got very, very good at shutting down and shutting out people who are not engaging in good faith. It's a total waste of my time and everybody else's. And I think I have to sort of explain myself very carefully and very deliberately. Yeah, certainly at the beginning, but we knew there would be all those conversations to be had about what does feminism actually mean? And haven't women got enough equality? And, you know, all those sort of things that are lobbed at you to distract you and to suggest that what you're trying to do is not reasonable or good. And, And we engaged with all of them very carefully and very deliberately in order to be part of those conversations and be invited to be part of those conversations and to normalise feminism as a political ideology in and of itself. So there was a very deliberate strategy behind going out and having those conversations. That was a very different feeling to sort of three years later, you know, when I'm being asked to go and do an interview with Jordan Peterson about, you know, some slightly wacky ideas about maleness and femaleness, which I know are, you know, sort of packaged and repurposed and, you know, still being cheered over by various MRA Reddit groups. <laughs> uh, but I digress. My point is you have to be quite strategic about it. You have to be quite strategic about what you're saying, where you're saying it, and the audience you're saying it to. That sort of makes me think more broadly about just the nature of the political system that we have and the way that it is. I've always thought of it, you know, when you observe the Prime Minister's question times and the kind of the way that debate plays out in the Commons, that it is very adversarial in its nature and that it was set up that way. And it feels that always to me like it was based on an Oxford debating club where you are almost trained in tactics around verbal combat rather than the overarching sense of purpose and collective resolution where, like you say, people are engaging in good faith. The, the goal is actually to outdo your opposition. And that feels so pointless and so outdated. And yet it continues. And so I sort of wonder, you know, in terms of your experience, I've encountered recently, I think they're technically a charity now called Elect Her, which is all about helping women who want to stand for election. And they do loads of really great stuff around dealing with things like online trolling and and speaking up and prepping them for the arena that you're about to go into. Do you think it's still worth standing and playing into that arena? Or I'm always having conversations about whether you should try to change the actual system itself or whether you should try to play within it. I have to say that Activate is in partnership with Elector and Glitch. So I've got nothing but good things to say about both of them. We're working on a project called Equip Her, where candidates will get support from Activate via the political fund, support from Glitch via how to deal with online trolling, and support from Elector via their excellent peer circles and wider work on learning about politics and political parties and what the process is like. I think there's so much that's wrong with our political system, but the only way to fix it is to is to find the next generation of politicians and to support them. I mean, I think I'm really driven by that. You know, Activate was something that I had an idea of before I left the Windsor Policy Party because it seemed to me so clear that there is such a gulf of cynicism between voters and politicians right now. And part of that is our electoral system, right? You know, the first-past-the-post system that doesn't give smaller parties a fair hearing and does, I'm afraid, I think, encourage a sort of vote for the least worst or vote against what you don't want rather than like wholeheartedly and with full support for what you do want, apart from the occasional places where there are PR systems in operation. As voters, we are as much a part of this as the politicians. And if you know 
good people. And the other side of Activate is that we give money to and support female community activists because we know that women step up as problem solvers where policymaking fails and where there is a collective failure of imagination at local government and central government where they just don't know what different lived experience looks like and they can't plan for it or speak to it. So women are running so many community organisations and so many community projects that are exactly the answer to so much of what's wrong with politics. So like, if you want to change politics, it doesn't necessarily always mean you have to be the person that runs the political office. You can be the person that finds and financially supports the person that you want to vote for in four years' time, right? I think it requires a movement, politics for everybody approach. How do we all fix this, all of us together? Pick something. Pick something and have at it. Like, as we, as we said at the beginning, there's 101 ways to fix this. You can campaign for a better voting system. You can run for office yourself. You can give money to women to run for office because, by God, it's expensive and women have got a lot less money. You can support that woman in your community that's running that thing that everybody relies on and sort of slightly might take for granted. We can absolutely build the politics we want. We just have to engage. I hope we repeat that message and repeat that message and repeat that message because I think the cynicism that you describe is given ways to defeatism. And there is this kind of growing sense that, well, it's over and, you know, this institution's crumbling. And, and it's only when you hear that kind of broader strategic thought that I think even like embers of hope begin to resurface. Because even my whole life has been around this kind of thing, but I can't bear being around, you know, Westminster of the last few years because it just got this kind of morbidity to it. Do you have a similarly refreshing perspective around the topic of diversity and diversifying teams? I know this, you know, the statement with which you left the Women's Equality Party. But I know that that's a very, very contemporary challenge that many organisations face. We faced it at Liberty and we felt like charlatans. The 90% of the young people that we worked with across the UK were young and black. Um, and 90% of our leadership team were middle-aged and white. Try as we might, we found it incredibly hard to fix that and, and fell over ourselves in correctness. But I know it goes far and wide. I, you know, lots of the work I've done on community housing estates, it's, you know, the central organiser is often a very different makeup of the majority of the community that they serve. And even like something like Extinction Rebellion, you know, it's falling foul of exactly the same challenge when the people who will be most likely to suffer the consequences of climate crisis will be not represented by the central organising team, who are once again predominantly middle class and white. And we tried to inv invoke like, the Rooney rule, like even though we couldn't appoint based on ethnicity or gender backgrounds or, or social class and backgrounds, you could at least make sure that you had quotas in your kind of interviewing panels. But that didn't work either. Where are you now a few years on? And, and do you have a similar kind of perspective or long term perspective as to how we fix that? I know many organisations trying to do good in the world are facing exactly the same challenge. I am learning a lot about this all the time. I think it goes back to what we were saying a little while ago. For me, I think the first question is, are you the right person to be doing this? The thing that you really care about, the thing you want to fix, the cause you want to dedicate yourself to, what is your part in that? Because maybe it shouldn't be you doing it. Maybe you need to find the person who should be doing it and support them to do it and fund them to do it and get out of their way. In the third sector in particular, there is a real challenge around funding the operationalizing of organisations there is a very limited idea of what money should be for. And there's slightly painful conversations going on about how quickly can you prove that you've made the change? What are your deliverables and where are your outcomes? I would like to see a shift to understanding that systemic structural change starts with 
ensuring that the right people are leading that change and that they are given exactly the funding and the support that they need. But I also know that there are really good people who are politicians. They're really doing their best and they're doing their best in an environment that paints them as idiots or not honest or it's also a very hard time to be a decent politician and I think compassion is required and understanding on all sides and and hope sounds like an easy thing but hope is absolutely the hardest hardest thing to hold on to that you have to sort of reset your determination every morning to be hopeful it's the constant act of defiance and I think it's what we all need now more than ever Thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much with us really really appreciate your time I'm sure you have lots on. Sophie, it's a real pleasure to speak to you, man, and just thank you very, very much indeed. And if there's anything within those things that you're doing uh, which I can support or we can support in any way, then please, you know, do let us know because you're speaking to everything that I felt a little bit disillusioned about. So if I can help in any way, I will. Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time.